And we pick up here in chapter 22 with one of the great, great stories in the Bible. I think it's a perfect picture of the gospel. And I want to read it to you here this morning, and then we'll pray. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And God doesn't test because he wants people to fail the test. He only tests because he wants people to pass the test and understand more of God through the test, the relationship with God through the test. Tests are positives, not negatives with the Lord. And he said to Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, now I want you to take your son, your only son, your only begotten son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let's pray. So, Lord, as a kid growing up in the church, I used to read this story and wonder what kind of God would do this? What kind of God would give a man at a hundred a supernatural child, supernaturally conceived, it would seem, and then ask him to go and offer him to you as a burnt offering? This just seems to go against everything we know about you and believe about you. Lord, what are you doing? And Lord, you know, as I grew older, I began to understand that you had a plan for this, that your ways are higher than our ways, and that you were inviting Abraham into your own experience with your own son in that very place, Moriah. And so, Lord, today as we reveal what's really going on here, we pray that we draw closer to you through your word, that we'd understand, Jesus, that you are in the Old Testament, that the gospel is proclaimed from beginning to end, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, and that we can trust your word, that we can trust the Bible, because it's so perfect in all of its ways. And Lord, this is a perfect picture of a New Testament principle that Jesus laid down his life for the sin of mankind at the cross at Moriah. Bless this uh, day, bless Brian and his family, bless that ordination, bless that church in Kamloops, bless this dear family with their precious little baby, and Lord, just let this be a wonderful celebratory day in your presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, take now your son, your only son, your only begotten son, and offer him to me as a burnt offering at Moriah. So, as I said earlier, every New Testament principle has an Old Testament picture. The, the Old Testament is the picture book for New Testament theology. And here we are at the very beginning, at the very beginning of the, of the, of the Bible in Genesis, and the Lord steps in uh, to mankind and he says this, I want you to go to Moriah. Now, this is what's really interesting. Where is Moriah? Moriah is Jerusalem. Moriah is smack dab in the middle of Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ obviously was crucified in what city? Jerusalem. And so just to give you an idea of what's happening here, when he says, take now your son, your only son, your only begotten, 
whom you love. As I said yesterday, this is the first use of the word love found anywhere in the Bible. And you would think, is God just sticking a dagger right into Abraham by saying this is the one that you love? No. What he's saying is that the supreme love that we find on earth is between a father and a son. And here's what I mean by this. There's a principle in the Bible called the principle of first usage. And whenever you see a word used for the first time in the Bible, it sets the highest tone for how that word is used throughout the scripture. And as I said yesterday, the first use of the word love in the New Testament is between God the Father and God the Son. In Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus is being baptized. And as he comes out of the waters of baptism, you hear a voice from heaven. It's the Father speaking to his Son. And he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Two out of the three times, um, I didn't say this during our love manifesto this last weekend, But two out of the three times that the father speaks from heaven to his son audibly, he's telling him, I love you. And that's very powerful. We need to hear that. But a father telling his son that he loves him is extremely powerful. I tell my son, Noah, that I love him, I don't know, 20 times a day. You know, he doesn't roll his eyes yet. uh, But I tell him I love him 20 times a day. I love being with him. And as I said yesterday, when you become a Christian, you're called a son of God, whether you're a female or you're a male, because the sons in the Old Testament were the ones that had the birthright. They're the ones that received the inheritance. And so now all males and females in the scripture, uh, when you become a Christian, are called sons of God. We have a father who has a father's heart toward every child of God in this room here today. Take now your son, your only son, who you love. You love this boy. And I want you to offer him up to me as a burnt offering at Moriah. So let me give you the picture. A few chapters back, a a priest named Melchizedek, who we believe is Christ. If you go to Hebrews, they explain more clearly who Melchizedek is. He was the king of Salem. Uh, Salem of course, became Jerusalem. It's where Moriah is. And he's also what's called the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Salem is Shalom, the king of peace. And he came and had a meeting with Abraham, and he brought him two things. It's the first time these two things had been served to somebody exclusively in Scripture. I hope I'm not losing you. For you Bible geeks, you'll really pick up on this. But for everyone else, I think you'll understand. He brought him bread. And what else did he bring him? He brought him wine. And it's the first communion that we see anywhere in the scripture. He brought him bread and wine. And somewhere along the line, even though Abraham was deeply flawed, and God only uses deeply flawed people. Can I get an amen? If you don't believe that, you'll find out soon. (laughs) God only uses, we're all deeply flawed. I don't want to be, but as long as I'm in this earth suit, I'm going to be flawed. It's only in in heaven that I am not flawed anymore. And he brings him the bread and the wine. And despite all of the things that Abraham had done wrong, God is so committed to this man that he wants to give Abraham, his friend, an experience. 
He wants to give him, he's drawing him in, kind of into a revelation of what he himself is going to go through with his own son at Moriah in Jerusalem 2,000 years from now. Let me ask you, if, if you had a friend and you wanted your friend to experience what you're going to experience with your own son, how would you go about it? That is the question of 22, Genesis 22. But that's the father heart of God. He loves this man. He has a plan for this man. He has a plan for his son. But he wants Abraham to experience at Moriah what he will experience with Jesus. And it's a perfect, perfect picture. And it gives us such confidence that the word of God is true. And Abraham, though he has failed, though he has slept with Hagar, another woman, and had a son named Ishmael, though he has lied to Pharaoh, though he has... uh, really had some amazing failures in his life. This is a test that Abraham is going to say yes to. Yes to. And that's the important thing. Even though we stumble, even though we fall, we can get back up in the Lord's mercy and grace and continue to say yes when he asks us to say yes. And Abraham says yes. And this is what happens. Go to verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. I emphasize the ands because there's six uses of the word and there. And in Hebrew, this is what we call a polysynodon. It's a Hebrew grammatical device that denotes a deliberate, willful action. So Abraham is going to get up early in the morning, and he's going to do what God told him to do, period. He's going to split the wood. He's going to get the donkey. He's going to get the two young men, and he is going to go and arise to take the test that God is drawing him into. He rose early in the morning, and he takes the wood for the burnt offering, and he takes the two men. And so this is the viewpoint. It's a three days journey to Moriah or to Jerusalem. He's got one man on either side of his son. His son is a dead man walking for three days all the way to Jerusalem. He's got the wood that he's going to be burnt on, and they are deliberately, willfully walking for three days to Jerusalem. And look what it says here, verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Hebrews gives us kind of a qualification as to what's going on here. Go to Hebrews 11, if you can, real quick. It's in the New Testament. Not the easiest book to find, so I just talk while you're trying to find it so you don't feel bad if you don't. That's happened to every pastor at least once. One time I was preaching in uh, Costa Mesa. We had about 700 people there one night. I was a live on the radio, and I said, turn with me to Jonah. Now, Hebrews is a lot easier to find than Jonah because Jonah is only two pages in your Bible. And I had just bought a new ESV Bible, and you know when you buy a new Bible, sometimes the the pages still stick together a little bit? Well, Jonah was completely lost in this brand new Bible. And I've got four ribbons sticking out of the bottom of my Bible that I use nowadays to find Jonah whenever I lose them. I just stick a ribbon there. But I'll never forget this. I'm standing up in front of all these people, live on the radio. 
I said, turn to Jonah, and I couldn't find Jonah. There's nothing worse for a pastor. <laughs> so I, I do what every smart pastor does. I, you know, Jonah's in the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So I, I figure, well, maybe Jonah's moved to the major prophets. So I'll check there. <laughs> oh, maybe Jonah's moved over to the Gospels. Is he with Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jonah? <laughs> so as I'm doing this and I'm talking and it's going on and on and on, just like I am now, even though I found Hebrews, a gentleman in the front row. I mean, this is a massive auditorium, 2,000 seats, and a man in the front row, massive pulpit. Um, I'm sweating buckets, walks all the way up the five steps to the podium, sticks his Bible right down in the front and says, here, Pastor Kid, I found Jonah for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I just didn't miss a beat. Of course, thank you. All right. And I just read from his Bible and moved on as if nothing happened. But it's one of my favorite stories now. So... Look at verse 17 of Hebrews 11. See, I did that actually for you, so you could find Hebrews. That was actually just for you. Verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. That's why I used the word begotten. Who was Jesus? He was God's only begotten son. You say, but he had Ishmael. How could he be his only begotten? And, and the, the principle here is, is that God never recognizes a work of the flesh, only a work of the spirit. And this is a spiritual birth. And so he's his only begotten. And it says in verse 18, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up. Raise who up? Isaac. Even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. He was almost dead when he received him. He's 100 years old. And so here's the point. You say, how could you say for three days he was a dead man walking? Because Abraham never thought that he would not have to plunge a knife into the chest of his son and that God would not raise him up. See, God had made promises. Through Isaac, you're going to have descendants that are going to be innumerable. And so he figured, if God's calling me into this, God has a plan for it. I have to trust God. I believe personally that Abraham's figured out what the plan is, and I'll explain that here. I think that Abraham has so bought into the Lord's narrative on his life and has, has began to trust him in such a way that he's beginning to figure out that God is, is bringing him into a very personal experience. And he, he really believes that God's going to have to raise his son from the dead. So in his mind, in Abraham's mind, for three days, his son is dead. Just as Jesus was dead in the tomb for three days, his son was dead for three days in his mind. And it says here in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. I love that. Great faith, huh? Offer up your son, your only son, as a burnt offering to me at Moriah. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. In the Hebrew, and, and growing up, as I said, in the church, I was raised a Baptist, and I had every storybook. You know those little storybooks you get as a kid at Sunday school? Every storybook growing up through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And every storybook that I ever had with a picture of uh, Isaac, he was like 10. 
you know? Abraham kind of looked like me right now, white beard and all, flowing white hair. But Isaac was 10, but in the Hebrew, the word lad means young man anywhere up to 40. That's what it means. Now I'm 49. I'm no longer a lad. But a lad can be anyone up to 40. So let me ask you this. If we're just playing according to type, what if Isaac was 33? He could still be a lad, according to Hebrew, the Hebrew language. And if you think about, as we learn here in a moment, that Isaac is the one that carries the wood up the hill, and he is willingly bound. If he's 33, he could easily overpower a 133-year-old man. But if he's willingly bound, it makes better sense than a 10-year-old boy. And he says this, the lad... My son and I, we're going to go up and worship, and we will come back to you. And this whole idea of worship would be making a sacrifice. He believed that he was going to be making a sacrifice. Of course, worship, what we experience here with Joel today, it's beautiful. And hearing you sing, it's beautiful. And seeing the expression at Calvary Chapel and at Christ the King, seeing people even lifting their hands during prayer, You know, I love the fact that we don't have to hype everything at Calvary. We don't have to jump. We don't have to swing from the disco ball during worship in order to feel something, right? I do love the fact you have it, but. But but we also don't have to be so dry and so dead that we can't express ourselves. There's there's a happy place where you can just in your spiritual life where you can just be who you are. And when I'm standing in the back and you're praying, I'm seeing these folks in the back. And they're just lifting their hands during prayer. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to feel comfortable during worship, you know. But that's not the worship that they're experiencing here. Uh, Worship during congregational worship, it's beautiful. But we know at the heart of worship, the heart of worship is this. It's what Jesus said to his father in the garden just before he was crucified. Just as Abraham's saying it. If it's possible, remove this cup from me. Remove the cross from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what does Jesus say? But your will be done. That's worship. Worship is bowing your will to the will of God. That's real worship. And that's what Abraham's saying. I'm going to go do what God has told me to do. I don't want to do it. I'm sure he's thinking that. In my heart, this is the most painful thing in the world. Because there's no greater love than between a father and his son, his children. But I'm going to go worship God and do what he has told me to do. But I know that my God is going to raise that child back to life because of the promises that I possess. And we will come back to you. I mean, what an amazing thing to see Abraham develop in his trust and faith and maturity with the Lord through the years. He's going to go full bore into the test. And this is what happens. It's really, really powerful. For those of you that don't know the story, I hope I haven't already ruined it. But for those of you that know it, there's no way to ruin it. And it says here in verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and where did he lay it? On Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham and his, fa- his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? 
for a burnt offering. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. He laid the wood upon Isaac, his son. His son carried the wood up the hill. Jesus was crucified on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. I've been there. It's pretty amazing. Google it when you get home. When you look into the side of the hill where my friend just was here, uh, what, a couple weeks ago, Matt and his pastoral friends, when you go to the place of the skull, when you really look at it, it looks just like a skull. It's still there. And so we don't know exactly where Abraham is going, but he may be going up to the place of the skull. He may be going where the Temple Mount was uh, originally built. But ultimately, uh, he places the wood upon his son. He takes the fire. He takes a knife. And then Isaac utters this amazing phrase, where is the lamb? And this is what's happening. If you know the gospel account, Jesus carried the patibulum, the cross, as you see right here, the patibulum is the cross beam. The stipe is the beam that the cross beam is placed on. And so he would have had this beam upon his back, a heavy beam. Jesus would have. Of course, Isaac just has wood for a burnt offering upon his back. But we know that Jesus carried the patibulum. And this is the way that a crucifixion worked back in the day of Jesus. You would carry that patibulum up. They would connect it to the stipe on the ground, and then they would pound um, a, a nail into both of your wrists and tie your wrists up to the patibulum. And then on the stipe, there would have been a little shelf. About right here. And that shelf would have been what you would put both your feet on the shelf to push off on, and then they would nail your feet to the shelf on the stipe. And so your knees would be crooked. Because the way that you died on a cross was through asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe any longer because you were hanging down. And so what would happen is you would use the shelf in order to breathe on the cross to push up, take a breath as big as you could, and then you'd begin to shrink back down. And pretty soon you wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. And that's how you would die. If you would actually survive like these men did on the cross next to Jesus, they would come and break your legs. Because if your legs are broken, you can't push. And if you can't push, you can't breathe. And so this wood represents the patibulum that Jesus himself carried up to uh, Golgotha, to the place of the skull. But what is the fire? If you're saying it's a perfect picture, what does the fire and the knife represent? Well, as you know, uh, the fire in the, in the scripture Hebrews says our God is a consuming what? Fire. Fire represents wrath. And we know that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he actually took all the wrath of God's hatred towards sin. Because God's perfectly holy. Man isn't. We're flawed. And so that chasm between a flawed person and a perfectly holy God Someone had to take the penalty for sin upon themselves at the cross in order to pay the penalty so that God could be united with a flawed person. Someone had to be a substitute and take the wrath of God for sin upon himself. And so we know that when Jesus was upon the cross, he actually took that wrath to the point where he said, my God, my God. He didn't call him father. 
He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we know at the cross that God poured out all of his holy indignation and wrath upon his son for the sin of mankind. In the Old Testament, the lamb, or the, what we would call the scapegoat, once a year they would transfer all the sin of Israel upon a goat and drive them out of town, but they would sacrifice lambs uh, to take away the sin or cover the sin back in the Old Testament of people that needed the burden of sin taken away. Jesus himself was called the Lamb of God. You remember John the Baptist in the New Testament, at one point he sees Jesus in this massive multitude of people, this huge crowd, and he points him out. He says, behold, that's the Lamb of God right there. That's the Lamb. Remember that story? That's the Lamb of God. And all the Jews would have understood this is the one that's going to be killed he, he actually pronounced a death sentence over Jesus in front of thousands of people. Behold, there's the lamb. And Isaac is asking the same, where's the lamb? And Abraham says something amazing. God will provide for himself the lamb. And I'm going to come back to that. It's really astonishing. So if the wood represents the cross, and if the fire represents God's wrath poured out upon his son, what does the knife represent? And this is the amazing thing. You know that in the gospel accounts, when they came to Jesus, he was on the cross and the Sabbath was coming and they had to get these men off these crosses. They broke the legs of these two other men, but they came to Jesus and the Bible had said that not one bone of Jesus's would be broken. Even where they put the, the, uh, the nails would go between the wrists and not even break a bone. But they came to Jesus and they stuck a spear or a knife into his side. And the Bible says that water and blood emitted forth. And we know now that the heart is wrapped with a sac called the pericardium. And the pericardium, when a heart bursts, it fills up with blood, just the sac, the pericardium. But over time, as we all know, when blood coagulates, it turns into clot and water, right? And this is why we know that Jesus died of a broken heart, that we know that his heart burst. The psalmist says that his heart would melt like wax, and it did. And so, therefore, water and, and, and clot or blood came forth, and they didn't break his legs. They just took him off the cross. Jesus was dead. And so Genesis 22 is a precursor. It is the picture. He had the wood. He had the fire. He had the knife. But where is the lamb. And this is how we finish the story. Let's pick up for just a few more verses. And it says this, verse 9, they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son. He bound him. If he was 33, Isaac is very willingly being bound. But either way, he's willingly participating. And he laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, and whenever we see the caps on the A and the L, the angel of the Lord, it's always a Christophany in the New Testament. It's always a picture. It's always, I mean, a, 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 a theophany, a, a manifestation of Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who is saying this. He called to him from heaven. He said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And listen to what he says. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Who was provided? The Lamb of God himself, Jesus. On this mount, the Lord will provide. See, somewhere along the line, Abraham began to understand what was going on. He receives the bread and the wine from the king of Salem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, the high priest to the Lord. And then he receives this test, and he decides he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he utters this amazing phrase. He says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then as he's just about to plunge a knife into his chest, the Lord comes in. He says, now I know that you fear me. And he finds a ram caught in the thicket. And right now you're sitting back going, no, it's not a perfect picture. If it was a perfect picture, he would have found a lamb, not a ram, right? Isn't that what you're thinking? I know what you're thinking. You've watched CSI so many times that you've already figured this out. But here's the amazing thing. On that mountain, there would only be one lamb that would be sacrificed, and that would be Jesus, only one lamb. And that's why you had to find a ram. But there's one more clue that's very, very interesting uh, in the Hebrew, and it's back here with what he said in verse 8. And this is why I think that Abraham understood all along. When he says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Uh, Hebrew scholars tell us that the word for is found nowhere in any of the original Hebrew manuscripts. It was added. And I've checked this over and over again. I've asked multiple pastors and scholars about it, and everyone has come back 100% that it's not there in the original manuscripts. And it changes the meaning of the text completely. Let me read it for you without the word for. And Abraham, he says, and he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb. See how it changes everything? God will provide himself the lamb. God himself will be the lamb. On this mountain, the lamb shall be provided. Even children to this day sing over such news. Amen? See, we can trust the Word of God. It's a perfectly written book, and the gospel is presented perfectly even in the pages of Genesis 22. That is the very place where Jesus himself would come, where Jesus himself would be provided, where Jesus as God incarnate would come and be the perfect sacrifice. He would fulfill what John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, who doesn't cover the sin, but takes away the sin of the world, is what John the Baptist said. And Abraham understood, on this mount, God will provide himself the Lamb. And he called the place, this is the place where God will provide the Lamb.
It's interesting. In chapter 23, Sarah dies. And Sarah in the Old Testament is a type of the law. And we know that when Jesus Christ died, that the earth became dark and there was this veil, this one foot thick, massive veil uh, that was in the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And the moment that Jesus died, actually the veil was rent to do away with the Judaistic system of relating to God. Now we would only come through Jesus, not through the temple. But the veil wasn't just torn from the bottom to the top. We know that God tore it himself because it was torn from the top to the bottom. And Sarah is a type of the law. She dies immediately in chapter 23. But the, the other interesting thing on the story arc of the gospel is that in chapter 24, Abraham sends his servant in his house uh, to Padanaram, where Abraham is from, 650 miles away. He sends him to Padanaram, and he says, I want you to find a bride for my son Isaac. And they find this bride by the name of Rebekah. But here's, here's what's fascinating. The servant that he sent, his name is Eliezer. And Eliezer in the Hebrew means God is my help or my helper. And Jesus said this, when I leave, I will send a helper. And he did. He left and he sent the Holy Spirit. He's called the helper. And what is the helper or the Holy Spirit's main role in life today? It is to draw people to Jesus. It's to draw the bride to the groom, to Jesus. And so you've got that beautiful story of the gospel in 22, the death of the law in 23, and then God is my help being sent to a faraway land to find a bride for the groom in 24. You can trust the Bible. It's fascinating. It's amazing. And I'm glad that I was able to be with you this morning. And if you remember one thing today besides you can trust the word of God, it's that the highest form of love in the Bible is between a father and his son. And if you know Christ, you're called sons of God here today. He loves you with an unfailing, infinite, uh, lavish love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's good news. That's the gospel. Thanks for having us. We've got to go catch a ferry and eat really good food at White Spot <laughs> on our way over. We love you guys. We'll see you soon. Bless you. Thank you.